Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Have you been putting off a difficult conversation or avoiding it completely? Do you want better outcomes in your most important conversations, either at home or at work? Then I am happy to tell you that I am looking forward to another book launch for How Minds Change. This event is going to be something where we explore this very topic. You can join me and negotiation expert, conflict resolution expert, communication expert, Misha Globerman, for an experimental, interactive, live conversation lab at the Rotman School of Management in Toronto on October 17th, either in person or via live stream. Tickets are available at the link in the show notes for this episode. We will invite someone from the audience to share their real-world problem with communication, something that always leads to what feels like a dead-end argument, some sort of intractable, relationship-destroying thing. And then we will walk them through the theory and practice of how to reboot that relationship and have the conversation they wish they could have using the science covered in How Minds Change and using the practice that Misha uses in his profession. Live, live stream, Toronto, October 17th, tickets available. This is going to be really fun. I can't wait to see you there. Yeah, another live book launch event for the book that I wrote called How Minds Change, which, by the way, is available everywhere. And I did the audiobook, and that's available everywhere. And for people who are still wondering about the audiobook being available in territories other than the United States and Canada, all that paperwork is taken care of, and it should be available soon. So look for that in your audio playing product platform thing of choice very, very soon. Oh, and I should mention that it is now available on Spotify. Spotify is now doing audiobooks, and you can go to Spotify. Just look for How Minds Change in their audiobook player, and it's right there. All right, enough promotion. Let's start this episode. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 243. Yeah, so this is a this is probably my magnum opus of the last few years. It's this big paper I've been putting on, kind of putting together all of our research that our lab has done, that I've done, uh, and as well as other research in the field to try to understand how cooperation works, how, why people cooperate in groups as opposed to being selfish. That is the voice of Dr. Jay Van Babel, a frequent guest on this podcast. He's helped us understand so many things from vaccine hesitancy to tribal psychology, all manner of groupish human behavior. He also appeared a while back on episode 212 to promote his book, The Power of Us, co-authored with Dr. Dominic 
Packer. And that book just keeps racking up awards. And I highly, highly recommend it. Dr. Jay Van Babel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. And Jay teaches one of the largest courses at NYU. And he's the director of the NYU Social Identity and Morality Lab. From neurons to social networks, he's published more than 100 academic papers on the psychology and neuroscience of implicit bias, diversity and inclusion, group identity and team performance and cooperation, decision-making and public health. His research has been cited in the U.S. Supreme Court and Senate and United Nations. But here's why Jay is our guest in this episode. He's very good at Twitter. His feed is always overflowing with the absolute latest and greatest research from psychology with links to papers as they come out on many of the topics we so often explore on this podcast. And one day I was thinking about how doctors and scientists and academics, whatever their specialty, part of their lives is a responsibility to stay up to date, which means they must read all manner of journals all the time. There's just all this journal reading and paper up-to-datingness that goes on with being somebody like this. And they're always looking at this stuff and corresponding with their peers. They need to know what's going on, what people are working on. And they're always commenting back and forth on this latest research as it's published. And if you follow the right scientists on Twitter, you can benefit from all of that. You can more or less get a front row seat to the papers that are starting the big conversations. The papers that excite and fascinate and motivate scientists to talk about papers as they trade links back and forth, asking, have you read this? Have you seen this? What do you think about this? And so on. So I asked Jay if he would be interested in sort of an experimental episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, in which I would look over the last two or three months of his Twitter feed, pick out about 10 of the studies he's shared, and then have him come on the show to talk about why he shared them. And he said, yes. And that's what we're about to do. I love this concept and I'm pretty sure I will do more episodes like this, which will give you a chance to catch up with the latest and most fascinating and most important work being published right now by researchers studying thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in the human minds responsible for such things within cultures adapting, evolving, and changing as those minds interact. So, Let's get started. And if you'd like to follow Jay Van Vavel on Twitter, you can do so by finding him at J-A-Y-V-A-N-B-A-V-E-L, Jay Van Vavel. All right, here we go. Hello. Jay, how are you? <laughs> hey, uh, hey, David, good to I, see you. I'm pretending we haven't already been talking for uh, 10 <laughs> minutes, but uh, <laughs> uh, I want to go through the research um, that you have been putting out on Twitter to get everybody up to date. But before we get into the individual tweets, there's something you've been working on that just came out recently. What is that? Yeah, uh, I just finished a book, came out a few months ago, called The Power of Us uh, with Dominic Packer. And it's really about the psychology of individuals and groups and how we start to identify with groups and how that changes the way we think about and act in the world. So, and we talked about that way back when Brett was about to come out, but it's been out there and you're, it's, first of all, it's killing it, but I want people to know that people really do love this book. Uh, it's, it's very important, especially in this I'd like to think of it as in between times, like 
we just went through a really strange epistemic chaotic craziness of not just COVID, but the end of a bizarre administration and lots of partisanship and polarization and QAnon and insurrection and all that stuff. And then, uh, and you know, and Alex Jones finally getting his comeuppance, <laughs> goblin vomit. That's my Alex Jones. Uh, you can smell them. They've got goblin vomit. Um, all of that happened. <laughs> And then the power of us is a, this book that's like you you might want to uh, know some things about how people work when it comes to in group and out group and, and identity and all these things that seem to be very uh, well the thing that's that's affecting a lot of this. So I can't recommend the book enough. It is uh, an essential read if you want to understand stuff, and it's also good, which is nice because there are some essential reads that I tell people about that I'm like just power through it, take notes. <laughs> 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 this one's actually good. Um, so. Did, was there some some research you wanted to mention as well that's that's new as sort of an addendum to the things you were in Power Boss? The first study I'm going to tell you about is actually I think one of the best studies I've seen in all of social science maybe ever might be the you know arguably in the top five studies maybe the best study ever um, and it just came out and the caveat it has not gone through peer review the other caveat is I'm now a co-author because I have an intervention in the study but I did not design the overarching study I haven't you know, been heavily involved in designing the whole project and drafting the paper. So I just want to say, like, I have a minor conflict of interest here. <laughs> um, but let me tell you about it, because basically, uh, it was a study that was spearheaded by Rob Willer, who's a sociologist at Stanford, and he wanted to design a competition among scientists to see who could come up with the best intervention based on their research um, to address things like partisan animosity. So you know, Democrats, Republicans hating one another, uh, as well as things like support for democracy and like the right to vote and those types of principles, as well as support against partisan violence. So, you know, it was basically saying every researcher around the world who's interested in these things and has a theory about it or has been doing some research, send us your best idea about how to stop these things and we will put it to a giant test. Uh, the cool thing is that the people submitting the intervention ideas were not the ones involved in testing it. So there's really no conflict of interest in the way that there might be with a normal study where the scientists designing and running the study also maybe it's their pet theory or whatever. Um, and then they got this, this huge sample of participants, over 32,000 participants, and they tested the top 25 interventions. And so um, my, my book formed one of these interventions and it was pitted against 24 other interventions. And we got to see, you know, what works best. What does the data show us? Um, and these were some of like the best ideas and the best theoretical models in all of political psychology. And um, I should say that these were the best ideas. These were the top 25 because I think over 252 teams from around the world submitted ideas. The, the head research team curated and picked the very best 25. And so now we're in the top 10%. And then they tested those with real data. And um, our intervention, I'll just I'll just tell you ours. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> and I'm looking at the tweet like you like it's got a very nice color graph. I love pitting scientists against each, against each other to change the world for the better. So this is cool. Yeah. So our uh, our book, The Power of Us, has a chapter on you know partisan conflict. I think we call it the chapter like inside the echo chamber or something like that. And it talks about you know um, partisan identities and how you have to build a common identity if you're going to get past this, but also have to you have to get like messaging from leaders to signal that they're actually on board with democratic practices and so forth. And so we we created an intervention based on that, very short, only a few minutes long. Um, and then it was pitted against a number of other interventions. And I'll just tell you what the top interventions were. Um, ours came in third, 
you know, out of so which which is pretty good out of twenty five. It's even even better when you consider it was out of two hundred fifty two. Um, but the best one is might be memorable to you and other people. It was actually that Heineken commercial, if you remember it from a few years ago, where it showed like you know liberals and conservatives sitting in a room and and they just started talking and they were like building something and they didn't know what it was and eventually they built a bar and at that point the the people the Heineken you know advertising gurus like showed the messages about their political beliefs that actually were arguably offensive to one another and asked them, do you want to stick around and have a beer with one another and actually talk about these issues now that you've like built something together? Um, so it really was the science of intergroup contact where they're working and cooperating on something and interacting in a, in a cooperative way with somebody that they otherwise would see as an outgroup member. And it turns out that was the best um, in, at reducing wow. partisan, partisan animosity. The second best intervention was about communicating that um, both sides distrust the mainstream media and building kind of like a common awareness that the media kind of presents cartoon images of people and what their beliefs are and kind of sharing a sense of reality around that. And then ours was third, but all of these were really strong. In fact, all of them were about equally as strong. Uh, with, and the effect size they had was uh, on reducing partisan animosity was about a D of 0.5, which is about um, I think it's the difference be in height between like a 12 year old girl and a 14 year old girl, uh, roughly around that. I, I, I'm forgetting exactly what it is, but something about that. So you, in other words, you would see it if it was there in the world. It's not, it's not subtle. It was a big effect. Um, and then there was, um, about 20 interventions that worked relative to that control condition and four that did not. Um, and then there was also measures of how much these things, you know, these interventions supported things like change people's support for democracy. And I think ours was about fifth best on that. Um, but it was really cool just to, to, to see what works. Um, the other thing I want to say is if you're like a policymaker, you're trying to like, you know, improve your community or whatever you want to use these, you don't have to use just one. You can, you know, create conditions for contact. You can create common identity, which was ours. You can kind of like build an awareness that, you might be your groups might be misrepresented in in the media or something like that and then bundle them together is probably what's going to have the biggest impact in the real world i love everything about this the intergroup contact thing i remember the the robbers cave experiment where like at the end of it they were like they pretended the bus had a problem they had the kids yeah. had to work on it and that's how they like undid the bad thing that they did turning them into lord of the flies and yeah and everything in the, in the the all port contact thing that that's still so foundational to everything it's lovely to see first of all good job heineken but the that's <laughs> lo it's lovely to see that yeah maybe i think take all this taken together what's lovely about it to me is there's so much throwing your hands in the air on twitter and, and facebook and even tiktok where it's like it's done we're, it's democracy's dead we're never going to get this back we've gotten too bonkers and partisan and this is like just like like your work with over COVID, you're like you know we have scientists who study this stuff. We couldn't, we can work on solutions. We can actually gather evidence. That's a thing that we can do, and this is a great example of that. I love it. Yeah, I want to say that there's two things I love about this. One is using science to try to make a difference in the world, um, and doing it in the rigor, most vigorous possible way, where you're getting all the best ideas, you're using the best theories, you're getting a big sample. Um, and, and you're pre-registering all your analyses. So this is like as rigorous as it could guess. It's using like the gold standard of scientific method. The other thing that's cool for, from a scientific perspective is normally we have these theoretical debates back and forth, and I know you do a good job of covering them on your podcast. Um, but a lot of times scientist A will run their own studies and come to their conclusions and say their theory is right. And scientist B will run, or team B will run their studies and you know find support for their theory and say they're right. 
but very rarely do you get them with the exact same you know, measures in the exact same sample to actually compare them and pit them in a critical test. Yeah. And you, you never get that with 25 theories. Yeah, yeah. And so I think this is also a really important way for science to move forward rather than just have all of us, you know, with our own little baby theories and our own little research programs is to put them in a super test and see whose theories hold the most weight and, and, and matter the most for real world problems. I, you know, I can't imagine, a, I actually think this is the gold standard for social science, this type of model going forward. I totally agree. I, I love Rob Willer. I, 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 love, he, I love that his Twitter handle used to be ghost faced Willer, but he changed that because <laughs> he's like, I'm, a, I'm becoming a famous person in psychology. I mean, but he's, <laughs> this is great. Like this is a trying, this is really changing the field to change the world. I think this is the best. I, I love when experimental designs like this become like, Okay, let's do more of that, and it's not just a one-off. So cool! I uh, thank you for thank you for like alerting the world to it and telling me about it just here because uh, I want to see more of this stuff. I'll, I'll maybe I'll see what Rob has to say later, but this is that's super cool. Thank you. And again, if you're just joining in, that means you were folding clothes or washing dishes and not paying attention. Um, I'm telling you, you need to uh, get on uh, Jay's Twitter feed if you want stuff like this all the time. I'm going to go through some of the other stuff that I, I found on your Twitter feed over the course of the last year. Um, one thing that pops out to me is I'm always crazy obsessed with pluralistic ignorance when it pops up. And there are a couple things you've pointed out that reminded me of it. Uh, this one is a tweet that you shared from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. It's a study about how the research suggests that Americans are doing a better job of cooperating and have been doing so over a period of time now, like there's an increase in cooperation, but our beliefs about uh, that very thing are in the other direction. Like we believe that our willingness to cooperate has declined while our willingness to cooperate has actually uh, improved and increased. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I shared this study is because I think this there's research in the cooperation literature showing that if you expect other people not to cooperate, you actually decide not to cooperate first so that you don't get screwed over, right? So you don't get exploited. And so there's research on that, that your expectations about cooperation often predict your cooperation. Um, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, essentially, around pro-sociality. If you think everybody is like going to be a bad person, then you become a bad person first to avoid getting exploited. And that's like a really cynical and toxic idea that gets into society's uh, mindset. And this was really interesting because it kind of was like a, an interesting case where the United States um, is generating more and more expectations that other people are not pro-social. And we've seen millions of articles about this, you know, about like crime going up, uh, little like viral videos of people yelling at each other about masks or like being abusive to like their stewardess on a, on a, on a flight somewhere. Um, but what the research also finds is that people actually are cooperating um, and I know this is something that uh, my, one of my colleagues, Jamil Zaki, who studies like kindness and pro-sociality, he's also actually at Stanford Psychology. And um, he has, has talked a lot about how a, a lot of behavior, even during COVID, you know, when it's been really rough times, has actually led people to engage in all kinds of pro-sociality, helping others, donating, uh, you know, being considerate of their neighbors in various ways. And, and the problem, of course, in the media is that <laughs> um, the narrative that we give people is, all, and on social media in particular, I think is really bad at this, 
is viral stories of bad behavior. But we don't uh, balance that out often with with the same amount of coverage of stories of, of good or altruistic or pro-social behavior. And so what you're getting now increasingly is a mismatch, at least in America, between people's perspectives on other people's uh, pro-sociality and the actual data. And so I thought that was, you know, just something, it's not my research, but I thought it was really interesting and it was really interesting, you know, I think it poses a potential problem that if we continue to generate perceptions of, of a lack of pro-sociality, then people might over time become less cooperative. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I remember before social media, I used to work for newspapers, and then then I started working for TV news, and I realized that we don't ever. There's never if nothing happened in our area we would then expand the range of the news out to the region, uh, to, the, to the next few cities. If, if nothing really had happened there, we'd expand it out to the, to like the few states and then finally the country. And then eventually we're like showing you news in like uh, Argentina. <laughs> and, and I'm like, because there's no way that, that we would ever say, hey, nothing really bad happened uh, this week. Social media does this times tr six trillion. And I've seen some of your research and some of your um, stuff you've shared about, you know, the more morally enraging a thing is, the more likely it's going to go viral, the more likely you will tweet it and send it out. We just have a very skewed, they call it the mean world or mean world syndrome, I think is what it was called in media studies, where you the more news you watch, the worse the world seems. But it's, it's oddly, the more you the more news you consume, the less accurate your understanding of the outside world becomes my hometown Hattiesburg Mississippi there was like a, a dentist or something who uh who like killed his wife and they did a uh, Dateline ABC did a story about it and I remember the opening of that was a, a pickup truck going across some old railroad tracks and in the background was <laughs> in the small sleepy town of Hattiesburg like it's it is not that town it, it is definitely in the deep south but it is just a place full of Applebee's and Olive Gardens. It's not <laughs> that, but, and that was my first brush with, uh, oh, that's what they do. Okay. That's Dateline ABC. <laughs> yeah, now you see why this is like a really good intervention for the partisan animosity study, which is like just developing a shared reality that the media is kind of characterizing some of these people. Like basically they're casting you as with a stereotype that you know, isn't necessarily true of your town or, or where you're from. I always tell people, if you go to the deep South, like as long as you're within uh, 30 minutes in the Olive Garden. It's like every other place in, 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 in America. <laughs> you tweeted that this research out of Nature, uh, the uh, journal Nature, that 80 to 90% of Americans underestimate the prevalence of support for climate change mitigation policies. But at the same time, about 80% of Americans, uh, well, 80% of Americans support these policies. Well, I'm, I'm getting it backwards. Well, while well, 80% of Americans support these policies around the same number of Americans underestimate there is support for these policies. That seems very pluralistic ignorancy to me. Yeah, I mean, this this was a big paper that just came out and got a lot of attention. Um, basically, what it's saying is the overwhelming majority of Americans support climate change policies like carbon tax, for example, um, but they assume that the minority of Americans support them. And so there's a big mismatch between the amount of private support that people have and what they think people around them believe. And we know that this is a big problem for changing behavior because people often engage in behavior that aligns with their perceptions of social norms. 
And so they might be more, more willing to vote a certain way or engage in certain actions by maybe an electronic car if they think it's popular. If they think it's unpopular, they're going to be less likely to do those things. And, and you know, Bob Cialdini has famously done all these studies where he gives people um, feedback on how much like energy they're using in their home each month and, and gives them data on like what their neighbors are using and they're less likely to use energy, you know, um, and they're conservative more and be more or environmentally friendly in their behavior if they realize that's what all their neighbors are doing. And so I, I realize, I think the state is a big, you know, says that this is going to be a big issue because the way that the media, I think, presents a lot of discussions around climate change is this probably suffers from, I would guess, both sidesism or both side, both sider kind of debates where here's the people who think they support it, you know, Democrats support it, Republicans don't. But the data suggests that even most independents and many Republicans actually support these ideas. And I think the way that it's getting communicated, especially in the mainstream media and also on social media a bit, is distorting their beliefs about what their fellow Americans believe. And I think also part of the problem of this, I study, as you know, a lot on social media, is that a very small number of people with extreme beliefs dominate discussion. So the far left and the far right have people, you know, political leaders have the most followers online and generate most of the discussion. Um, and so we we generate distorted perceptions of what the average you know, person believes, right? Those, those kind of like average Americans. And it turns out that their perceptions are, are far off, very far off. We had mentioned it just a second ago, but morality being a key feature of hatred. It's such a strange sentence. These studies found that people... Things that were connected to their, their moral beliefs, they were more likely to not just disagree, but hate. Uh, what, what's going on here? So this was research that I started 20 years ago when I was like, a, I think, a second year PhD student. And at the time, I was studying implicit or unconscious bias, which was very popular at that time. And I was realizing, like, maybe this is not that big of a deal. It might be a big deal, you know, among like people at, on university campuses who, you know, don't have much explicit bias, but... So you're looking for evidence of some bias, you you find implicit bias. But I realized in the real world, the things I actually cared about that I thought were damaging was when people had like real genuine hatred for one another. And so uh, I started this project with, with my graduate advisor, Will Cunningham, and it was originally supposed to be my PhD dissertation and ended up like going in a different direction around common identity, common in-group identities. But um, I always kind of like wanted to follow this up. And so when I, when I got to NYU, I teamed up with some PhD students there, Yel Gurneau, Jenny Ray, and uh, a postdoc, Clara Pretis. And we uh, found across four studies, including three lab experiments, plus uh, an analysis of like real hate groups and what they put on their websites, um, what we found over and over again is that the things, when we asked people to talk about things or groups or ideas that they really hated, um, they would say it's something that's connected to their morality. And so they feel morally justified in hating that group. Um, and so that could be like, you know, it, a lot of these studies were done on campuses. And so that might be like, you know, you hate people from, from certain political beliefs, for example. Um, those are the types of things that we're more comfortable talking about. Um, but it might mean like you hate people who have a certain belief system. Like, let's say you hate people who are Islamophobic. So you, you don't like people who are prejudiced against Muslims. And at the, at the time we ran the first study, that was one of the things that we saw in the data. Um, but when we talked to them about it, they'd say it's because it's connected to the morality. But when we went to actual real hate group websites that were, you know, judged hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and we coded the content on their websites, that was actually the same logic and rhetoric that they used. 
that they would frame what they were about, whether these were like white supremacist groups would say the same thing. The reason I you know, don't want immigration is because it's a threat to the values of being an American. And that's part of our core moral belief system. And so whether or not we were looking in the lab with undergraduate students in Canada or the US, or whether we were looking on real hate group websites, um, whenever we compared it to, uh, and this of course was compared to a control condition, which in the, in the experimental studies was asking them to talk about things they just disliked. And so it seems like one of the, the, the ingredients that takes you from just disliking something to really hating it is that element of morality. And once you have that, it comes with moral emotions. So they would say, makes them angry, it makes them disgusted, it makes them feel full of contempt. Um, and those were the things that really differentiated it from just disliking something. And so it seems like that's the thing that might push people over the edge that make, make the willingness to take action against a group or idea. Um, and so maybe that can be leveraged sometimes for good. Um, but you know, in the real world, I, I think that often spills over into pretty uh, nasty things. So it's one of the, maybe one of the dark sides of morality. And, I'll, I'll, and another key thing here is when we think about hate groups, um, they're often described, they were described in the literature by like famous social psychologist Albert Bandura as being amoral. But it turns out they're not amoral. These are not sociopaths in the classic sense where they have no sense of morality. These are people who think that they're morally justified in doing what they do. They're like ultra moral. Yeah. And, and so this might be why they feel comfortable spreading conspiracy theories or misinformation online is, you know, you, you quoted Alex Jones before. I, I think he's just a grifter trying to make money. But I think a lot of people who are doing the similar type of work, spreading his message, are doing it because it's, in, it's InfoWars, which is the title of his show, right? Inf they see it as justified information warfare against some other belief system or ideology or group. The thing about moral stuff that always gets me, I, I still like the moral dumbfounding thing. I can never get over how bonkers that is where you keep, you, you, you cover every single thing that a person could object to. And then at the end of it, they go, I don't know why it's just wrong. Like they reach that. I can't get below the, this, there's no introspection available to me beyond this point. I don't know why I'm feeling these feelings. Psychology is all about trying to define these words. So if I, you ask for a definition, the, the whole point of this is we're trying to define it. So it's it's a work in progress. But like, what is morality to a psychologist? Like, what are we even talking about? Because because that's a word that gets has folk meaning and scientific meaning. And so just to kind of clarify it. Yeah, I mean, one of the core things is just that it's connected to your core values whatever those are. And the thing is, those differ from person to person. Um, but once it's connected to those core values, this is something I, I found is once you, you know, I have another paper where I get people to, you know, judge certain actions, like riding a bike. And, and I ask them, is it morally right or wrong, you know, to ride a bike? And if it's, and once they think of it through a moral lens, if they judge it in black or white, so it's either morally virtuous or morally evil. I can ask them about riding a bike in terms of like pragmatics. Well, you know, it saves me money to ride it, but if it's raining, it's kind of miserable and I'm sweaty by the time I get to work. And so it's maybe like a four to seven, you know, or five out of seven. Um, and so they're kind of more nuanced and, and can see things in shades of gray, but once they see it in morality, they see it in a black or white. And the other thing we found is once they think of it mor morally, they start to think everybody else should follow their beliefs. So that's called universalism. They suddenly think that this should be kind of a universal way that everybody treats this issue. You know, all of a sudden, everybody should ride a bike. If you're thinking about riding a bike through a moral lens, if you're thinking about it pragmatically, you think, well, for me, it's probably a good idea because I have a nice bike path on the way to work. But for you, you, you have a long drive and it's probably not worth it for you. You should probably just take the subway or drive your car in. And so you don't impose your beliefs on others. 
And so that's one of the things I think morality does. It's, it makes people think in black or white and impose their values on others. And that's why we're seeing it, you know, why it spills over, I think, into hatred when it's, when it's yeah. a bad thing. It's like, because when you, when you're in that universalist frame and you, you, you're like, I can't help but feel this visceral affect thing when I think about this issue, it just seems unquestionable completely because you didn't have control over it. The feeling happened to you. So that creates the dumbest kind of arguing. Well, the only thing I have to do is give this person a bunch of links and show them a bunch of YouTube videos or say, Hey, have you read this book? Cause th it's so, <laughs> it's so obviously the truth that all I have to do is inform you and then you will snap into the way I see things. There's no way that you can't fathom that another person could have a different moral lens than you. Yeah. I think that like, this is one of the, the points that John Haidt has made. And originally I used to just disagree with him on this, maybe 10, 12 years ago. I thought reason, reasoning played a bigger role in morality. Um, but I think he, now, now that I've studied this for another 10 years, I think he was mostly right that it's mostly intuition. It's kind of automatic gut driven things about right or wrong. And, and those are based on values you've internalized from society and maybe, you know, you have been role modeled to you or whatever, or your community values, you absorb those, those things. But once you have them, it kind of triggers kind of responses that don't necessarily seem logical or reasoned. And it's hard for somebody to kind of counter argue with you. Uh, your words, people are less willing to engage with others who they think believe hold emotion-based attitudes versus rational because they believe those people will be closed-minded and do, would not be willing to hear out their arguments. And so they just don't engage and they self-fulfilling prophecy themselves. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah. So this was a new paper that came out in Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. And basically what's happening is in the way we communicate all the time, I think we're signaling where our attitudes are coming from. You know, probably if you interact with me or you follow me on social media, you're seeing most of my beliefs are probably coming from papers I've read. They seem to be like based on evidence and rationality. That's what I try to communicate. Um, but for other people, you know, they say, I've always known this is wrong or this causes me to feel disgusted or I'm just outraged by this. And so they're leading often uh, with their emotions and explaining why they hold their beliefs and they're connected deeply to their emotions. And so when you see that in people, um, you are, you know, you think these people are closed minded. And so you often don't want to engage with them. And in fact, you know, I, I, this paper came out, I actually have a paper under revision uh, with Billy Brady and Elizabeth Harris in my lab, where we have several experiments, large experiments, showing this when people use moral emotions, this is especially strong, that if people use moral emotions, and they're on the other side of some issue from you, then you see them as closed minded and you disengage with them. Um, and, and whereas if they talk about the exact same belief and they don't use moral emotions at all, you're much more likely to see them as more open-minded about the issue and you're willing to engage with them. And so when we use that language, uh, our pre previous research has found that when we use moral emotions, um, one thing it does on Twitter and, and on Facebook is that more likely those messages are more likely, likely to spread. For every moral emotional word we put in a message, it's about 15% more likely to be shared by somebody else. Um, but it, when we, we find when people use that, it kind of creates what look like echo chambers, that people stop talking to one another if they're different ideologically. And so I think that's partly what's happening here is that it suddenly becomes, you know, the, the term you often use is tribal, right? It suddenly determines I'm going to only engage with people in my in-group who already agree with me. If it's somebody I disagree with and they're using this moral or emotional language, then I realize they're probably 
you know, it's hopeless for me to get through to them or they're, they're going to lash out at me if I try to talk to them. And so I'm just going to avoid any conversation with them altogether. And so we have to be aware that there's kind of like probably, I think of it as like a double-edged sword. If you want to mobilize your in-group, sure, use this language. But if you're going to try to persuade people, change their beliefs, you know, the whole premise of your book, then you probably need to use different language. You probably need to communicate to them that your ideas are based on reason and that you're open-minded and that you're, if they're based on reason, then presumably you're really willing to update it if they can present more evidence to you. And so you have to kind of signal a little bit of openness and evidence-based thinking to attract people who differ from you to be willing to engage with you in a conversation. Yeah, I love this so much. The the phrase open-minded, closed-minded, it, it's it's so loaded with all of this psychological flotsam and jetsam of, of of assumptions and I think the earth is flat and the other person's like, "Well, I don't think it is." Like, "Why are you so closed-minded?" That's such a bizarre <laughs> way to like push back. Like, open like are just aren't you willing to look at the evidence? And it feels like that makes the flat earther feel like I'm being rational, you're being emotional, and therefore I am open-minded and you are closed-minded. And I love or hate, I love hate how that mixes together and people can frame themselves as being the rational party when clearly they're the emotional party because we're all the emotional party. You can't cleave emotion out of human experience. This is the one that, that makes me want to walk out, to, just go, go walk straight into the woods and just look at a pond. <laughs> jurors regularly vote. This is your, these are your words from one of your tweets. Jurors regularly vote to convict defendants despite believing in their innocence due to group pressure to achieve a decision and avoid a hung jury. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever, this reminded me of the movie 12 Angry Men, I think it was with what was, was Jimmy, what was his name? Jimmy Stewart. Um, I love this movie. It's all about group dynamics and group pressure. Um, and so the movie is like basically, you know, these jurors in a room trying to come to this decision. I think it was somebody who was accused of murder when I'm, I watched it many years ago. And they're all going to convict this person. And I think in this, in this, in the movie, it's great because one guy actually has tickets to like the baseball game. I think it's like a Yankees game. He just wants to get the vote in and get out of there. And it seems like the guy's guilty. So let's just like get the vote in and move on. And so there's this kind of pressure to like just come to a decision. And Jimmy Stewart is kind of the hero of the movie because he says, let's go through the evidence. And he goes to each single person in the room, finds out why they think the person's guilty and kind of like gets them to reason carefully through the evidence and points out holes in that story. And eventually they all come to the conclusion this is a wrong conviction and they say the person's innocent. Um, But what happens, it seems like this dynamic happens in real juries where there's pressure to convict And so um, what the data shows overwhelmingly is that um, there's, it seems like there's a lot of people (laughs) who might privately believe uh, that, that someone is innocent, but because they simply want to achieve a decision, they just vote yes. And you can see this in voting patterns. This was actually from uh, Louisiana juries and criminal court cases over a five-year span. And there's almost no cases where there's three, four, five, six, seven, or eight, or nine votes to convict. It's always everybody above the threshold of 10 votes convicts, or there's a couple holdouts and it's a hung jury. Um, and so it seems like if you're like kind of, if there's like maybe nine people who want to convict, but you need 10 to kind of reach a, a conviction, 
the ninth person who might vote no just says yes, just to get it over with. And so this is this is a problem because think of you know these this is decisions to send people to jail for years, for often for their life. You know, even if it's for a short time, they have that on their record, their life could be destroyed. And 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 these and it suggests there might be many cases where it should be a hung jury um, because the evidence isn't strong enough. But just because there's this kind of threshold in Louisiana that once you get to 10 votes or more, it makes a decision and avoids a hung jury that people kind of seem like they go along to get along. They go with the crowd and they don't want to be kind of the the one person holding them back. So so this is a huge problem. What it suggests is that you actually maybe need to change these thresholds, um, you know, or have some process that allows them to like, you know, not be a hung jury, but maybe it's it's like a lesser charge or something like that. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not an expert on, on legal systems, but it just to me, I, I shared the study, which was a new one that had just come out because I thought it shows kind of the real world consequences of understanding how group pressure and conformity and, and the value of dissent and creating systems this is a big theme in our book. Uh, Dominic, my co-author, is an expert on dissent and the psychology of what makes people dissent. And basically, one of our points is that you need to also create systems and norms that make dissent healthy, um, and especially in criminal court cases where someone's life hinges on it. And we, we have a theory, a philosophy in our society of innocent until proven guilty. Um, and, and these are cases where if, if there's only nine votes to convict, that means four people thought the person was innocent. And there's and because of group pressure, they're going along and convicting them. And, and so I think you need to create systems and, and norms that make it easier for those people to dissent. Here's another tweet from you. People with the strongest opposition to scientific consensus have the lowest levels of objective knowledge, yet they also have the most confidence. So the people who speak with the most certainty uh, against scientists are the least trustworthy and self-aware. This comes from science, uh, not science itself, the journal Science. Well, you know, tell us what we all were worried was true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the problem. And you've seen this around all these issues around conspiracy theories, politics, COVID. Um, most people who are experts, as you know, because you've delved it more and more into this, you've talked to a lot of experts, most issues have some complexity and uncertainty around them. And so what scientists are often trying to do is communicate the best evidence they have in a moment. But once, you know, most times you talk to a scientist or if you read their papers, they're often loaded with uncertainty and hedge words oh, and yeah. confidence intervals. <laughs> Very unwilling to give you a definite because like there's no such thing as definite. Yeah, yeah. It's called science. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, even our statistical tests are almost never designed to give definite answers. And even when we talked early about climate change, you know, there's not a hundred percent consensus among scientists. It's like, I think it's like 99%, which is more than you'll find for almost any other issue but still not 100%. And even within that consensus, there's complexity about what they think will work and under what timeline and so forth. Um, and so, so scientists always are debating. And as I already told you about the, like, you know, my, the very first study about the, you know, you know, challenging democracy intervention tournament, it was like, well, we don't know what works best. So we're still running studies to figure it out. And there's not one answer. There's a bunch of answers. So there's just a lot of uncertainty in, in science. Um, and so scientists often know this. And so they have like, uh, you know, often, at least for me, I have an amount of confidence that varies with the amount of evidence I've seen for certain issues. So for some things, I'm pretty confident, others, moderate confidence, others, not so much. And so you can ask me and I'll explain that to you for most things. Um, but people who are not scientists often, you know, know these issues more superficially. 
Um, but for some reason, they have more confidence. And in some levels, this is like your conspiracy theorists who you study, like your flat earthers, like they have so much confidence around this issue. Um, and they speak with such certainty or, or listen to Alex Jones, the way he talks, he's completely convinced everything's a conspiracy, often without any like solid evidence. Um, and him pitting things together in, in weird ways without insider knowledge. And so uh, you, you would almost never see scientists talk like that about things that they study. If anything, I actually had a tweet after this. That I said, scientists are not, are not immune to this, but I think where scientists go wrong is when they're weighing in on issues they don't know. So if you have a chemist weighing in on a, on a psychology finding, well, then they might hold it with more confidence than they should, or, or the opposite way around, a psychologist weighing in on you know, something in chemistry. Like I've, I've heard something, I saw something in the news and it seemed you know, like a solid thing. Or I remember from my intro chemistry class in high school and it seemed like a settled issue. Um, and so I hold those things with more certainty than I probably should. In reality, I'm imagining a lot of them are like more nuanced debates that are ongoing in the field. Would you say this is more evidence for Dunning-Kruger? Yeah, a lot of people weighed in on this um, tweet <laughs> when I posted it that saying this is Dunning-Kruger. Um, I don't know if it's Dunning-Kruger exactly, but it reminds me a lot of it. it, has a lot of that kind of nuance where, you know, it's the people who are like least knowledgeable who are the most miscalibrated, I think is more like the Dunning-Kruger idea. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions 
and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No. You get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Okay, uh, this one I really dig. This made me think a lot of stuff. This spun me in a lot of directions. Um, it's one of your tweets. I'm reading from your words. Our new paper finds that children of liberal parents engage in costly third-party punishment against in-group members, whereas children of conservative parents engage in costly punishment against out-group members. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot in that. Tell me something here. Okay, so this was a, a project led by a graduate student at NYU, Rachel Leshen, and and Daniel Yudkin, who was a former student. And we ran a couple of studies, and we were looking at uh, what's called costly third party punishment. And so in these studies, and what that means is you see 
it's actually little kids. Um, the first study was run at a museum and children's museum of Manhattan. And what happens in these studies is you see a video of another kid at the museum, like ripping up some piece of art from some other kid. And the, and the question to the participants who are young children was, are you going to punish them? <laughs> um, but if you do it, it's going to be costly to you. So for example, we had this like fun slide and they could go down the slide, but we asked them, do you want to close the slide so that other kid, when they come into the play area, isn't allowed to use it? But of course, if you close it, it's closed to you. And so you have to really be committed to punishment to do this. Um, and what we found is that, and we had their parents, of course, bring them into the study because, um, you know, you, you can't get kids to run the studies without having their parents there and their parents' permission. But when we had their parents give over permission, we had asked the parents about their demographics, but also their political beliefs. Because um, there's research suggesting that there's um, important differences, even among young children, in their political uh, preferences. Or at least prior work had found that like little kids, if you look at their dispositions and behaviors, you can predict what their politics are going to be, you know, 15, 20 years later when they're grown up. And there's twin studies showing that like identical twins are much more likely to have the same politics than, um, than non-identical twins. Um, and so it suggested a, a big, at least this is why I wanted to run it. it, was a big part of politics is heritable. Also that parents from a young age are conveying potentially in their parenting style, they're act treating children differently based on, you know, their political beliefs. And so, and this is like, of course, endless debates about how kids to be taught in, in schools and Democrats and Republicans are constantly like parents are yelling at each other right around the country right now about all these issues. There's very big political divides about, about child rearing. And so anyways, between these biological factors and these social factors. We wanted to see, does this change how kids think about morality and group membership? And so we had them see in-group and out-group members um, who, you know, who are wearing the same jersey, you know, same team as them or not. And what we found is that um, kids are biased in their punishment, but the pattern of bias is very different, whether their parents are liberal or conservative. So kids whose parents are liberal um, are more liberal. Uh, the more liberal their parents are, the more likely they, those kids were to punish in-group members more harshly. And so they're doing what's called in-group policing. <laughs> um, and if you live in like a liberal community, you can be very familiar with this. Uh, it seems like liberals are constantly like policing each other's language. You see this all the time on social media. I'm, I'm an academic, so I see this constantly in academia. Um, and uh, among conservatives, it's the opposite. They're more likely to let the in-group member off the hook and punish the out-group member more harshly. And so it seems like morality from a very young age and, and how you treat in-group members and out-group members differs um, based on the political ideology of the parent. And now I want to say, like, the one thing we don't know is whether this is because of biology, the, the heritability, the genes of the kids, you know, maybe little kids who are eventually going to grow up to be liberals you know, do this differently than kids who are going to grow up to be conservative. Or maybe it's something in the household about parenting. That's the thing. I think there's disagreement even among the authors on this paper about what's driving it. We just don't have the data. But anyway, so we found this across two studies, and it really does show that even from a young age, you know, the, the, you know, young liberals potentially and conservatives are acting differently. Of course, these are little kids, so they don't yet know what it means to be liberal or conservative. Um, but they're acting in different ways. Let me give you the, the heritability argument for this and what it might mean. That, and I have a paper with John Jost on this. He's a political psychologist who studies personality factors. And, and one of the arguments that we got from a book by John Hibbing is called Predisposed, which is this biological basis of politics. Well, the argument I think that John has developed, and I tend to agree with it, is that a good amount of politics 
is um, our our personality. So uh, he's found, for example, that liberals score higher on openness, conservatives score higher on conscientiousness. So those are like big five personality traits. And so you might, before you even realize, you know, before you're even paying attention to politics, you might be attracted to certain types of ideas and certain types of people and certain types of places to live. And if you're conservative, you're attracted to different leaders and ideas and places to live. And so people sort themselves into parties as they get older and they learn oh, what each party and leader stands for. But a lot of that might be baked into your personality at a really young age. It might be detect and research suggests those personality differences are detectable in young, very young kids. And so, so that's kind of what's called the bottom up element of politics. And of course there's the top down and that's a big thing that I study. That's more of my research. That's what we've been talking about here. It's just a, a leader says something or your party is doing something and there's social norms or messaging and you kind of fall in line with the party um, and that shapes your beliefs. But part of it here is also bottom up potentially. And so those kids don't know what politics are yet, but they're behaving in ways they have temperaments and personality styles that are eventually going to make them more, more or less attracted to a party. Of course, I always have to say this when I talk about heritability is that this is only about 40, 40 to 50%, probably about 40% of your political preferences is bottom up or heritable. The rest is determined by your situation. So I want to say it's not, biology is not destiny, but, but it does guide you or nudge you or make certain ideas more or less palatable to you. Even 40%, I think for most people would be like, whoa, because I think there's, at least in our culture, there's a oddly a value about this, which is, I, I would like to believe it's one to zero, zero to 1% heritable. I want to think all of yeah. my political ideas, yeah. I, I decided those I felt I'm feeling it because I did some yeah. research and, uh, this idea that it could even be 40% heritable is, is shocking to a lot of people. I think, can I, can I add one thing about, you know, since you, since you wrote about changing beliefs, Oh, please. The yeah. implication for talking to somebody who's different from you, um, changes too, right? Because it means if you accept that, say like, half of their political beliefs are not based on logic and reason in, in the way that we traditionally think of it. It's based on kind of temperament. Then it means that, you know, reasoning might not always be the easiest way to get through to somebody. You're going to have to realize there is going to be some temperamental differences and preferences baked in that are, you know, very much like taste. Like, you know, like I might like sweet foods, you like salty foods. And that's kind of like, you, I'm not, you're not going to convince me to like salty foods and I'm not going to convince you to like sweet foods. Um, and so a part of our, our politics and political belief system, if it's, if it's partly at least or half biologic, you're going to have to realize part of your conversations with people are going to be, have to, maybe you can convince them part of the way on something, but you're going to have to accept that like, how, you know, how much tolerance are you going to have for those parts that are temperamental? And that's like, I, I think that's part of like the debate we should be having in society about how do you have a diverse democracy with those differences? <laughs> I like this a lot. I'm going to steal what you just said. I will cite <laughs> yeah. you. Uh, I'm you going to say cite, that in my... You could cite John Hibbing. That's, I think, John he, that's what he okay. says the implication is. And he has a great book called Predisposed, which I recommend picking up and reading. It's, it has other authors, but he he's the author that sent it to me, and I, I spoke to him about this. Okay, let's imagine you're trying to convince somebody to like salty, yeah. <laughs> like sweet food or salty food. Like, like you, know, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, here. you can't. That's yeah, you good. can't. You can't reason with them about that. They just like put it on their tongue and they spit it out, or or they love it. Let me try to convince you that uh, <laughs> a, a Negroni is the greatest drink in the world. Like, you can't. What do you? Hold on, hold on. Let me take out this whiteboard. <laughs> So yeah. here's the thing. Here's the ingredients. Italy. Here's the alcohol. Uh, <laughs> Italy. Yeah. <laughs> Italy. Let's like, start in Italy. Not, 
Italy, it's like, 1852. <laughs> they're like, okay, okay. I wish I had known that. Now I love Negronis. I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. Last thing, this is the biggest one, of course, I say for last, uh, because I don't have no idea what you're, what's going on here, because it seems big. Uh, but you have the new paper about neurons. This, I'm reading from your tweet. Neurons, norms, institutions all put together. And it's the fact that you're jumping in and getting neurons in there, that, that makes me think, whoa, what are you up to? So tell me more about this new paper that you've got, where you're combining all these different silos into understanding something. Yeah, so this is a this is probably my magnum opus of the last few years. It's this big paper I've been putting on, kind of putting together all of our research that our lab has done that I've done, uh, and as well as other research in the field to try to understand how cooperation works, how, why people cooperate in groups as opposed to being selfish, and. Uh, what we've done is tried to look at every level of analysis that we thought was was relevant. So that includes social neuroscience. So I've done studies where we've you know put people in a scanner and measured their brain activity while they're cooperating, and it, it shows us some really interesting things. So in one of the studies, we we looked at um, they were cooperating with you know we told our students from NYU that they were going to cooperate with students from two other universities, and they quickly learned that one of those universities was hyper cooperative, that the norms in that group were very cooperative versus the other university was very full of selfish people. And so while they were interacting with them in these economic games with real money, they cooperated almost twice as often when they were interacting with the students from the cooperative group. And so people often think of cooperation as like, oh, that guy's a nice guy, or she's selfish, or vice versa. Um, but what we found is that cooperation is actually hugely flexible and it's shaped by the norms in pretty radical ways. Like, again, the cooperation rate goes from like, I think like, I forget the data, like 25% to 50% when you're interacting with different people. It's twice as high. That's a huge effect. Um, but also the way it gets processed in the brain differs. And so the I'll try to simplify it in, in terms of uh, psychological language. But what it suggests is that it, ch it changes how easy it is to cooperate. And so when you're cooperating with cooperative people, it becomes automatized and easy, and you don't have to use like your lateral prefrontal cortex to kind of regulate this behavior. But if you're interacting with a selfish group of people, it's very effortful and hard to cooperate because your default response be is to just be selfish. And, and occasionally might override that and say, well, I'll try to cooperate this time and see if they reciprocate, see if I can get something positive going. Um, or you're always you know, kind of strategizing and thinking, maybe I'm going to be screwed over. Um, and so your, your brain responses to decisions to cooperate change depending on the norms of the group you're in. And so, and there had been a lot of debate in philosophy dating back hundreds of years, you know, back to, I think it was a Hobbes and Rousseau or Hobbes philosopher Thomas Hobbes argued, you know, life, you know, humans are, life is nasty, brutish, and short, and kind of argued that humans are really intrinsically nasty. And so we have to have like big institutions to regulate their cooperation. Um, whereas Rousseau argued that, you know, humans and our natural environment are very friendly and pro-social. And, and what our data suggests is neither of those are really true, um, that it really depends on the environment you're in. And that changes, you know, all your, your mental machinery. Um, and then the last part is we really do get into this institutional piece. And we do find, I guess, is probably a little consistent with Hobbes, which is that um, having good, trustworthy institutions 
that will, for example, oversee interactions and punish bad actors increase, increases cooperation. But it doesn't just increase cooperation, it reduces bias. Okay, so here's what happens. If you don't have good institutions, you will only cooperate with members of your family or your community or in-group members because you know they'll cooperate back with you. But you become very prejudiced and discriminatory that you don't cooperate with out-group members because you can't trust them. Um, now, the moment that you have institutions overseeing it, that discrimination starts to go away. And this is why institutions, trustworthy institutions, like a legal system, you know, a, an effective and trustworthy police force, Department of Justice, government, are so important because they get rid of prejudice um, and discrimination and groupishness and parochialism. And so this is what actually, I think this is one of the biggest messages from this is that the biggest threat, I think, like to our society is the erosion of trust in institutions, whether it's trust in science, trust in the police, trust in government, um, trust in healthcare providers, because then we just rely more and more on our in-group and, and that starts to increase discrimination. So I think that that is why um, you got to think of when you're thinking about making a, a society allows people to cooperate and get along for economic transactions, just to help your neighbor out, um, have a positive, productive society. You really need to think of, of the problem at all of these levels. I think you need trust. I mean, a big problem with, you know, we talked about partisan animosity is how we open this. Um, a lot of it can be, and, and you talk about misinformation and conspiracy theories, uh, one variable that probably captures a lot of these things is trust. That once you have distrust, it fosters conspiratorial thinking. It fosters, it allows misinformation to spread. It means that you have more discrimination and partisanship and people less willing to follow social norms and go along. And I'll just zoom out to, to COVID. If you look at countries that handled it really well, those are often countries that have a lot of trust in their institutions and leaders. Um, and they, they managed the pandemic better. They had way less infections. They were able to open their economy sooner. They were able to reduce mortality and, and the, the damage to their healthcare system. So countries like Denmark, New Zealand, uh, one of the reasons those places excelled is because they had greater institutional trust and they were able to leverage that in a moment of crisis. So I think like the further erosion of trust in institutions, which is happening more and more in the US, I, I think is like major red alarms for me just studying this stuff and, and thinking about it. I just love this concept of cooperation is flexible, like cooperative behavior, our, our inclination to cooperate is flexible and very environmentally influenced, socially environmentally influenced. And, you know, cooperation begets cooperation. I find that fascinating and fascinating because like when you bring in neurons that excites me because I'm like you can also say well why and like it's there's a lot of cognitive load to deal with someone mm -hmm. that you don't trust yeah and it's metacognitively expensive and and when people are looking for solutions I, this happens to me all the time i'm sure it happens to you when you're doing lectures and stuff they're like what do i add to this to fix it and so often the case like here it seems to me well no there's something you need to take away from this and that is this cognitive load that people are experiencing. And how do I take that load out by creating this situ the situation where I don't have to think about that anymore? So it's a very different kind of solution because especially in government, they're like, well, what can we add to the, you know, I think this that like uh, feature creep thing that happens with apps, like I keep adding stuff instead of taking something away. And this idea that I can encourage cooperation by, by, uh, setting the stage for it also reminds me of all the things that in persuasion research, where the first step is I need to establish rapport with this other person. It seems to me what's happening in the brain is 
I'm making it easier for the person to talk to me because I've taken away that load of, mm, mm, what are you up to? Mm, mm, are you yeah. going to get me? Does it seem like, you know? Yeah. I mean, anybody who's had an interaction with somebody they didn't trust knows what this is like. And 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 travel to a country where institutions are broken. I have a, a, a good friend, a, a colleague in political science, and he travels to countries where um, and I won't name the countries, I don't want to offend anybody there, but he goes to some countries and he has to bring a stack of money to get through the airport to his gate to bribe every right official as he goes through it. Not only does he need to have the money, he needs to know who to bribe and how much to get through and say the right things. And so the amount of like economic cost to it, the amount of like cognitive effort and like in, like expertise by talking to other people about how to navigate this, Think of like, imagine adding that onto all your trips <laughs> that you do um, and getting through any system or institution. And so that's that's what it's like in countries that don't have working institutions. It's just so much effort and extra money and friction to get things done. And we take for granted because we do have pretty good working institutions here, how easy it is to trust one another, make transactions and, and navigate systems. Um, and so that's why that's like a very fragile thing. And you can see it getting increasingly eroded. Um, and, and hopefully that stops soon. But, you know, travel to a few countries in the world and see where it doesn't work and see how those systems work. And you'll understand quickly. This is why the United States for a long time, their foreign policy has been about building institutions like in other countries that people can trust, including like voting, um, justice systems, policing, economic systems. That's largely what like the, the American foreign policy is you know, aimed to do. I don't think they've always I think they've done it very badly in many cases. Um, yeah, but but that's what the World Trade or you know the, the the world you know these these international organizations like United Nations World Trade Organization uh, you know world world global banks and stuff have been trying to build institutions to do that. Wow! Oh my God! This is way better than I expected it to be, and I expected it to be great. Uh, this was one of I have benefited immensely. Uh, I've got so many notes over here and. Uh, <laughs> So like anyone who listens to this is, I hope, uh, I just, this is really great. I really appreciate your time and, and doing all this. And I'll reiterate, look, uh, you can just get this all day, every day. If you'd like, if you just, uh, start following this man's Twitter feed, I really appreciate all this and thank you for all you're doing. And thank you for actually being, you're part of this, uh, cabal of scientists who are like, can we just like fix things? Can we fix the world? <laughs> like, I love that it is and not in any kind of Pollyanna saccharine thing. It's like. No, let's use just like a physicist would be like, we can solve uh, this aspect of climate change or we uh, biologists is like worried about this ecosystem or a, a medical professional is like, no, we can work on cancer. Like social scientists are actually saying we can fix the institutions that are that where they're cracked and broken. And, and yeah, I think that I mean, that's what we all try to be part of. I, oh, I want to say the one thing about science. I said this in my book is like a lot of the studies we talk about. It's like you can nudge things in the right direction by three or four or five percent. Five percent was the effect of our, our intervention, that intervention tournament. Um, but but it you know, but you can add these things up. You can find three or four things that work and stack them and have better effects. And so I think the goal of us is just to get better. And I will say, like one of the most exciting things is I would say there's you know, there's always like some sloppy science out there, but I think the top one percent of science right now, the top five percent of science is so especially in social science and and behavioral science has gotten so much better in the last ten years. 
that these top studies coming out now are just like so well run, so transparent, so well powered that it's just a really exciting time to be to be part of all this this work and these innovations. Yeah, I, I as a as an onlooker and reporter of this world, I've watched the replication crisis and file drawer effect be addressed, and uh, we're in that first phase of really getting some results from that. It was like the best thing that could have ever happened. I'm glad it happened. <laughs> yeah, that's why dissent is healthy and, and reform is always healthy. That's like, I, the, the, some people saw the, the, the replication crisis as like the, the takedown of the field. I actually saw it through the lens of the history of science, which is that science, all sciences regularly go through these processes of finding out our methods and paradigms don't work. And the whole point of science as a belief system is to constantly be okay, well, you have new ideas, you're pointing out these problems, let's try these, let's test them, let's see if it makes things better. And then the things that are good, we keep and the things that maybe didn't work that were bad ideas, we drop. And so it's that's the whole point of science is just to constantly be improving it based on the evidence that we're getting about what's working and what's not. So I think that's like been such a healthy outcome of this. You can follow Jay Van Bavel on Twitter at Jay Van Bavel. That's J-A-Y-V-A-N-B-A-V-E-L. And his latest book is titled The Power of Us. My latest book is How Minds Change. It's out now. You can find a link to that in this episode. Show notes right there in your podcast player. And you can go to the homepage for How Minds Change. We can find all sorts of stuff. A roundtable video with a group of persuasion experts featured in the book. You can read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for the newsletter, read reviews, and you can scroll down and find links to all sorts of podcasts I've been on and YouTube channels and so on. Um, that's it. That's the end of this episode. So if you want links to all the studies and the tweets that were mentioned in this episode, that is over at youarenotsosmart.com. You can find links to everything we talk about in every episode there. And you can also support this whole operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features by going to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the easiest way to support this show is to just tell everybody about it. When there's an episode that really sticks with you, that gives you some value, tell people about it. And you can follow me at David McRaney on Twitter, follow the show at NotSmartBlog, and you can check in in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.